It's such a joy for me to be here. You can, you can be seated. <laughs> Just to see so many familiar faces uh, and to know that uh, it was really while we were at Emmaus Road and I was serving as the co-music director back in the days along with Adrian uh, that uh, really Lexi and I first started sensing a call to church planting. A lot of that is because Dan Breed is, uh, he's, a, he's a guy that can really convince you to do things, right? <laughs> I remember him sitting me down and telling me about the On Wisconsin program and what our presbytery was wanting to do. And at the time, I was working in college ministry. Uh, and we had seen what God was doing here at Emmaus Road, and we were excited to see God do that work elsewhere in the state of Wisconsin. And we're excited to go to Stevens Point. We've been, as Dan said, preparing for it for around six years already. And it's amazing that it's here. We've already launched two Bible studies over in the Stevens Point area. We've had almost 60 people uh, come and check out those Bible studies. Uh, people that uh, are Christians who are uh, looking to be a part of our mission and people who, haven't, who have been out of the church for years. Uh, and we long to be a place where we can welcome those, uh, those people back into the body of Christ and be a place where the gospel is made clear in Stevens Point, along with other uh, faithful churches. So it's a it's a joy to be here, and it's a joy to bring God's word to you this morning. Now, you know those sneezes that almost catch you off guard a little bit, right? It's, it's polite to sneeze quietly, right, to maybe cover, cover your sneeze up, trying to make it nice and soft, but sometimes it just bursts out of you, right? You can't really hold it back. You don't see it coming, and it always seems to be in the most inconvenient place, in the most inconvenient time, if you remember the early days after COVID when you're walking around a grocery store and you don't want to be that guy or girl that looks like you're sick, uh, and so you're, you know you have a sneeze coming maybe and you want to hold it back, um, but it, again, it just bursts out of you. And what do you hear as you're walking down uh, the canned vegetable aisle and this sneeze just erupts? You hear from a couple aisles over, lofted up over the ground coffee and lofted up over the bread, the tortillas, and the rice, someone yells, bless you. Such an odd thing, isn't it? Bless you. Why do we say bless you when someone sneezes? I think we rarely think about why. And actually, Linguistic scholars have multiple theories about the origins of the phrase, bless you. But I'm less interested in the origins of the phrase linguistically. I'm thinking about the here and now. When someone sneezes and you yell out, bless you, whether across a room or to them right in front of you, are you aware of what you're saying and why you're saying it? What are your intentions behind saying the words, bless you? Is it merely a cultural convention? Which obviously those things are things we do without thinking of them. Or do you really intend to bless the person who just sneezed? Probably not. I don't. But do you know that God says, bless you? Not necessarily in response to us sneezing, although that would be pretty nifty. Every week to end your worship services here at Emmaus Road, Dan or David will come up and he will raise his arms, his hands toward you as the congregation, and he will declare over you a benediction. 
benediction from Scripture. And benedictions are all over Scripture. And really, benedictions are just a blessing. It's God saying, bless you to his people. And I think benedictions can easily turn into the sneeze response bless you of the Christian worship service. We do them. We say them. Maybe it's an act of convention or tradition. But we don't understand the intention behind the words. I mean, we need to end a worship service somehow, don't we? We can't just have the last song and everybody walks out. You've got to do something. So, I mean, why not a benediction? Christians have done that for a long time. But when we see that the benediction, the blessing, is not merely a tradition or words from a pastor, but really the words of God to his people, then everything changes. Because when God says, bless you, God means it. When God says, bless you, God has intention behind it. Psalm 67 is one of the clearest statements of these intentions of God in blessing his people. So look with me to Psalm 67 this morning and pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who loves to bless your people. And as we look here at Psalm 67, we pray that you would, in fact, bless us so that your way may be known on earth, even in Appleton, Wisconsin, even in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea of Psalm 67, if you're taking notes, is that God blesses his people that the nations might be glad and that he might be glorified. God blesses his people that the nations might be glad and that he might be glorified. Or if you want to simplify it, it's simply the title of the sermon, Blessed for Gladness and Glory. And I want to break up that larger sentence into three parts as we walk through Psalm 67. So first, we see that God blesses his people. Look with me to verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So we look at this first verse. One thing I want you to notice is that there are two earlier passages of Scripture that lie in the background of Psalm 67 that shape and inform the theology, the outlook, the vision of Psalm 67. It's kind of like when you take one of those, just a plain white piece of paper and you set it over another sketch or drawing so that you can see through that piece of paper and you can trace its outline. 
in a way, it's as if Psalm 67 has been placed over two earlier passages of Scripture. Their outlines have been traced. And then the psalmist has reshaped them into a unique vision. The first of those earlier passages is from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. What I want to do is read those verses for you. You don't need to turn to them, although I believe it is the benediction at the end of this service. But what I want you to keep your eyes on is verse 1 of Psalm 67. And as you're looking at verse 1, I will read Numbers 6. And I want you to see if you can notice how Numbers 6 has been, has shaped verse 1 of Psalm 67. So with your eyes on verse 1, Number six says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, just another way of speaking of the face of God, upon you and give you peace. Of all of the benedictions in scripture, number six is perhaps the benediction. The benediction par excellence, the benediction of all benedictions. And throughout the ages, it is the benediction that is perhaps most commonly used in Christian worship. But notice how the language of that benediction from number six is borrowed and reshaped in Psalm 67. Would God be gracious to us? We see that in Numbers chapter six. May God bless us. And perhaps the most distinctive line from Numbers chapter 6 in Psalm 67 is, may God make his face to shine upon us. Psalm 67 is taking that content and reframing it as a prayer. Instead of the Lord bless you and keep you, it's may the Lord be gracious to us and bless us. It goes from, from you to us, from second person to, to first person. Psalm 67 is taking the benediction and making it a prayer. They're asking God to do what God has promised to do in the benediction. And perhaps the key phrase, again, that is borrowed from number six is that kind of odd phrase, that God would make his face to shine upon us. What does that even mean? That's not really a phrase that we use today. Well, Proverbs chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, gives us an idea of what this might mean. In Proverbs chapter 16, the author's writing about earthly kings. He writes, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Then there's a contrast with the king's wrath. He goes on, he says, In the light of a king's face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Wrath contrasted with favor. And the way that the favor of the king is described as the light, is as the light of a king's face. The shining of his face. The radiance of his face. And that face, as it shines upon the people, brings life. It's like spring rain falling on that newly melted snow soil. And it brings life brings flowers, and it brings joy to our hearts as the long Wisconsin winter is finally, finally coming to an end. But that's described as the light of a king's face. It's a sign of his favor. It's like being called into your boss's office, or if you're young enough, maybe your principal's office, and you walk into their office, and right away, you can tell by the look on their face whether you're in trouble or not. 
whether you maybe are going to get a promotion or you're getting fired or you're getting detention if it's a principal. But here in, in Proverbs 16, it's walking into the throne room of a king where the consequences for good or bad are far greater. It's not just being fired or getting a raise. The potential for blessing is far greater, but the potential for the wrath of the king is far more severe. And so imagine yourself standing outside the throne room of the king, the great oak doors in front of you, and you are shaking in your boots because you don't know what's about to happen. You didn't receive any information on why the king was calling you into his presence. And as those doors swing open and you walk into the throne room of that king, the first thing that you see is his smile. Imagine how in that moment all of your anxiety, all of your fear would just melt off of you because you see in that moment that the king that has the potential to put you to death is actually a king that loves you. A king that is for you. But more than this, the shining face of God is the actual presence of God and our sight of him. In that moment when we know that the king is for us and that fear and anxiety melt away, we are freed to enjoy his presence. We are freed to look on the king, to look at his glorious royal robes, to look around this beautiful throne room that we have never set foot in before in our lives and to soak it in to enjoy every last drop of the presence of that great king. In in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the literal translation often of being in someone's presence is to be before his or her face. Actually, the word that is often used in the ESV, translated presence, is literally just the word face. Which makes sense to us, because to be in someone's presence, right, is to be right in front of them, to look at them face to face. But we see with God that his face shines upon us so that our faces can gaze upon his face. Throughout the Bible, it's the sight of the face of God, specifically visual language, that is presented to us as the ultimate and chief blessing from God, even the goal towards which all of human existence is driving and directed. The sight of God. And on the flip side, it's the hiding of God's face that's the great and devastating curse of the fall. That's why David in Psalm 27, he cries out, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you see that visual language? But it comes in even clearer as, as David goes on. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. The Apostle Paul describes this also as the end goal in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Our great longing now ought to be that face to face vision of God for which we were created. What theologians throughout the ages have often called the beatific vision. I don't expect you to remember the words beatific vision 
But do remember and keep in your hearts that longing to see God. Because right now we do see God, but we see God only with eyes of faith. We see God with hearts full of hope that long for the day when what we have now, this seeing in a mirror dimly type of vision, this faith-filled, hope-filled vision of God will burst into full, vibrant, heart-bursting sight of God. I think my favorite song by the artist Andrew Peterson is a song called No More Faith. It might be an odd title for a Christian song, No More Faith. But in the chorus of that song, he says, I say faith is a burden. It's a weight to bear. It's brave and bittersweet. And hope is hard to hold to. Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief. Till there's no more faith, there's no more hope, I see your face, and Lord, I know that only love remains. Andrew Peterson gets it. Right now, we have faith. Right now, we have hope. But one day, that faith will be turned to sight, and what a glorious day that will be. St. Augustine, or Augustine, if you want to call him that, he speaks of this sight when he says, nothing further than that delight, the sight of God, will be sought. There will be nothing further to seek. That's the same Augustine who wrote famously in a prayer to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. How often when we think about the blessings of God, do we seek the earthly blessings that he can give us, when all along the blessing that God intends to give us is himself. How amazing that our God, our King, would give us himself. But how can that blessing be ours? Because as you read through the benedictions of Scripture, as you read through verse 1 here, we know that we don't deserve this blessing. How can we walk into the throne room of a king, a king who knows every single instance of us breaking his law, a king who knows every evil thought, he knows every secret sin, he knows every minor flaw, he knows every single major blunder of our life. How can we walk into his throne room and not see his angry face of wrath, but instead see his smiling, shining face of favor? Because we don't deserve a blessing. We deserve its opposite. We deserve a curse. How can God show us such grace? Well, the first petition in verse 1, and one of the ways that number 6 is reshaped, is that the petition for the grace of God is put at the beginning. God, be gracious to us. God, our only hope of your blessing is in your grace. You showing us precisely the thing that we don't deserve. And how can God be gracious to us? Well, it's only through Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who took our curse so that we could have the blessing of God. That is the gospel. That is what we rejoice in. That is what we declare, that Jesus took our curse and we receive the blessing. And even as Jesus purchased for us the blessing of God, perhaps even more amazing is that Jesus is himself the blessing of God. 2 Corinthians 4.6. Notice the language here. 
that we see in Psalm 67. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus Christ. What is the gift of the gospel but Jesus himself? Look to Jesus in faith, brothers, sisters, children, so that one day you will look fully, personally, face-to-face into the eyes of your Savior and your King and know his love like you've never known it before. All right, we're through one verse. All right. How long does Dan usually preach? I won't ask that question. Okay. Promise to move faster from here on out. But we really need to understand the blessing of God if we're going to understand the intention of God in that blessing. What is God's purpose? Look to the first word of verse 2. That. Whenever you're studying scripture, I encourage you to maybe underline, or even I, I often triple underline whenever I see words like therefore, so that, that. There's a purpose of God in blessing us. The first blessing, our intention of God in blessing us, is that the nations might be glad. Remember, blessed for gladness and glory. God blesses his people so that the nations might be glad. Look at verses 2 through 5. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. What do we learn from these verses? Well, first, that God blesses us not only for the sake of us. God does not bless us only for the sake of us. God blesses us to bless others, to bless the world. Now, if you remember, I said there were two passages that are lying underneath Psalm 67. The first was number six. The second is Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. God says to Abram, the man who becomes Abraham, and again, pay attention to how these words shape Psalm 67. God says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, this is important, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It has always been God's intention in blessing his people to bring blessing to the nations, to the world, to every family of earth. We are blessed to be a blessing. And throughout Psalm 67, the emphasis is on people, again, from every people group, from every nation, being gathered into the enjoyment of God, with verse 4 at the dead center. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And why are they glad? Because of the justice and the guidance of God. He judges the peoples with equity. 
Unlike so many earthly judges, our God is a God of true justice, and he guides the nations upon earth. These are words that ordinarily describe God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. But this is a picture of the Gentile nations being brought into that family, into the very people of God, so that they too would share in the eternal gladness of God, of knowing him, of having the privilege of seeing him in the way that his people have seen him. The blessing of God is not something that's meant to be hoarded. It's not something that's meant to be hidden away as if to share it means there's less left over for us. I grew up with three brothers, four boys in our house. The neighbor house, which we shared a driveway with, had five boys, pretty much the same age range. Terrifying. Nine boys, one driveway, two houses, and a big backyard. What could go wrong? Actually, I got lunch with one of those neighbor boys yesterday, and we were talking about how amazed we are that we all made it, and we have all of our fingers and toes and other limbs. So when we'd have pizza, often we would, we would actually have, have meals together. It's kind of like those five boys are, are my other shared brothers. When we had pizza, every piece of pizza that one other brother or neighbor boy ate was one less left over for you, so you had to eat quickly. It's not saying that my parents didn't provide well enough for us, but when you have nine growing boys all in the same room, someone is bound to be left hungry, because honestly, all of us could have eaten a whole pizza by ourselves. You didn't want to be that boy at the end complaining that you didn't get enough. God is not like pizza. I love saying things in sermons that people probably have never heard before in sermons. God is not like pizza. God is not a zero-sum game. The blessing of God is not something that the more that they get means that there's less for me. God is inexhaustible. And if the blessing that God gives us is himself, and he is the inexhaustible fountain of all goodness and all blessedness, then he will never run out. We ought to be generous with the blessing of God. Whether it's physical, temporal, earthly blessings that he gives us, or even the chief blessing of knowing God in Jesus Christ, we should long for those around us to share in it. Let's not be those that are so focused on ourselves that we forget those around us. Looking at verse 2, I think we see two ways then that our blessing leads to the gladness of the nations. First is that we display God's blessing. This is what it means in verse 2, that God's way would be known on earth. The ways of God would be displayed as God's people were transformed into the likeness of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face, just love how often that's in scripture, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For Paul, it's actually the sight of God that is the thing that transforms us into the image of God. And then the ways of God are known on the earth. It shows us that a transformed life is actually a part of our mission as the people of God. So we display God's blessings, but we also declare God's blessings. We see this in the next phrase, your saving power among all nations. What is the saving power of God? Well, we don't have to guess. 
Going back to Paul, he tells us directly in Romans chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Speaking of passages lying underneath other passages, could it possibly be that Paul, in writing this in Romans chapter 1, had Psalm 67 in his mind? The gospel, the saving power of God, to the Jew but also to the Greek, to the nations, to all who believe. And to Paul, this gospel is something that is meant to be spoken. It is something that is meant to be shared, declared, proclaimed, to the nations. For us, that means our next-door neighbor, that family member, that co-worker. We'll never do this perfectly, but if we long to see the blessing of God lead to the gladness and joy of our friends, because that's what we ought to delight to see for them, then let us commit to both displaying the blessing of God and declaring the blessing of God through transformed lives, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to our world. God blesses his people that the nations might be glad. But God also blesses his people that he might be glorified. That's our last point. God blesses his people that he might be glorified. Verses 3 through 5 mirror each other exactly. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Or I think maybe a better way to translate it based on word order, which I think is pretty neat, is that uh, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you, all of them. I love that. God's blessing always is meant to lead back to his praise. Psalm 67 is often called the great missionary psalm, the great evangelistic psalm of the Old Testament. But these verses remind us that evangelism and missions have a goal beyond themselves, the worship of God. As John Piper has famously written, and I think this is probably the most helpful thing that he has ever written, in my humble opinion. John Piper wrote, actually meditating on Psalm 67, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's a weird thing for a church planter to be saying to you. Missions is not, even church planting, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Chew on that phrase for a second. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When God blesses us and blesses others through the gospel, his purpose is to create worshipers. Is that not what he said to the woman, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? That the Father is seeking such worshipers, enjoyers of God, whose joy is to bring him glory. This should shape our motivation in evangelism, shape our motivation in missions. Are we motivated by the glory of God and the worship of God? Or are we more motivated by trying to produce converts so that our church would grow, so that the pews would be full? so that we would make a name for ourselves, or so that God's name would be praised by just one more voice in that eternal choir. We long to see worshipers drawn to God because God isn't merely seeking converts. He's seeking worshipers. 
And is this not what God made us for? This is why we exist. Perhaps the most famous element of our doctrinal standards as Presbyterians is question and answer one from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is on the front of your worship guides. What is the chief end of man? Another way to ask that is, what are we here for? Why do we exist? What is our purpose? And the answer is simply, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what God made you for. This is why you are here, not only in this room. This is why you are on earth. This is why you breathe. This is why you eat and drink, as Paul says. This is why you are saved. It's for the glory of God and your joy in him. Perhaps we could say from Psalm 67 that the chief end of man is also the chief end of the mission of the church. Why does the church exist? Enjoying and glorifying God. Gladness and glory. Even if we're unsure as to the why of saying bless you when someone sneezes, please let us not be unclear as to the why of the church and the why of church planting, the why of missions, the why of evangelism. Because it's so easy for us to get sidetracked. But let us know that the why is clear for us. Gladness and glory. Enjoying and glorifying God. As Lexi and I have been dreaming and praying and preparing for church planting in Stevens Point for years now, we've longed for the vision of the church to be shaped by that end goal. Because the vision really is that thing that you keep your eyes on. It's the thing that's out at the end of the work that you do. It's kind of the way of saying, why do we do everything that we do or anything that we do? What end is it pursuing? What is the goal? What is the telos, the thing on the horizon? So as we talked and talked, we went on a, a, a retreat, the two of us, and prayed and prayed. It kept coming back to us, the vision of the church plant, which we're going to call Good Hope Presbyterian Church. Hope, our eyes set on the horizon, keeping our eyes forward. What is that thing that we look forward to and long for and long to see others long for? We exist that the people of Stevens Point and central Wisconsin might glorify and enjoy God. It's simple. It's not because we want to be uber-reformed and Presbyterian, so we got to just stick that on the front of our worship guides. It's because we truly believe that that's why we exist. It's that thing that we keep coming to. We long for Psalm 67 to be a reality in Stevens Point. That God would so bless his people. That he would so bless Good Hope Presbyterian Church. That he would so bless the other faithful churches in town. That he would so bless every believer who dwells within the borders of that city. That the people of Stevens Point, that that city would be drawn to enjoying and glorifying God. And may everything that we do serve that end and that goal. Because Psalm 67, it gives us that picture to long for. A grand vision for God's plan for his people. And it ends in the last verses with a statement of confidence. Remember, verses 1 through 5 is a reshaping of these two Old Testament passages and reshaping them as a prayer. But it changes in verses 6 and 7. It's no longer a prayer as much as it is a statement of confidence. 
There's the repetition in those verses, God shall bless us. That God will, in fact, do what he has promised he will do. Oh, God, bless us, but God, we know that you will, because you have said that you will. God will not fail to do all that he has promised, and it ends, God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. So when you receive the benediction in just a few minutes at the end of the service, I want you to keep these things in mind. The benediction is not mere Christian cultural convention. It's not just mere words of bless you that we can move on from quickly and ignore and forget the why. They're words from God to you. And God intends to bless you. And he intends to bless the world through you so that he would be praised and glorified for all eternity. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for blessing us in Jesus Christ, that now with eyes of faith, of faith looking to him, that we do now know you, that you really are with us now as just a foretaste of what is to come. Give us hearts that burn and long for the sight of you that is promised to us. May every other blessing only drive us toward that instead of being a distraction in our hearts. But God, even as we love you and fellowship with you and long to see you, God, may we look outside of these walls and long to see others brought into that joy as well. And shape our hearts so that the thing that we desire most in our work as the church here at Emmaus Road and Appleton and Good Hope and Stevens Point and every other faithful church in this city, in this state, in this world, oh God, may everything that we do drive toward the end and the goal of your glory, your praise, and your worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great and gracious Savior. Amen.